This is episode eight of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Megan Nosel. Megan is extremely knowledgeable in the world of head and neck cancer. She's one of those super intelligent people that has not only skimmed the literature, but she can really dive in and think critically and relay it so well in her clinical practice. I've been getting lots of requests for head and neck cancer, so I thought Megan would be the perfect person to break it down for us, give us a crash course from ground zero. Megan is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and since graduating, Megan has been a clinician in the skilled nursing setting, outpatient rehab, and nonprofit organizations. She's also taken 36 credit hours of additional pre-med coursework and has a strong research background. 36 hours of pre-med work. That's, Megan, you're nuts. Currently, Megan is an SLP at Steps for Recovery, which is an outpatient clinic where she treats adults who have trismus, an array of communication disorders, and dysphagia. She's also a board member of the nonprofit organization Larry Speakeasy, which provides laryngectomy supplies, support, and educational resources to laryngectomies and their caregivers. Megan is the founder and co-trainer of the ARC-J program, Trismus Intervention Certification Course for SLPs, and additionally, she is the creator of the website www.speechtherapytoolbox.com, which is a resource for patients and caregivers of communication and swallowing disorders. So, in this episode, we discuss the ABCs of HNC. Megan gives you a great general knowledge base about treating head and neck cancer, so don't forget to head over to the swallowyourpridepodcast.com to download the show notes for this episode because Megan gives you tons of great info and references to check out. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. So I know you guys are always asking me what like the latest and greatest courses are as far as treatment. And I will totally admit, since I do diagnostics all day, that sometimes I fall behind on keeping up with the latest treatment CEUs. And I'd always heard that e-STEM was, you know, you know, it's so effective for PTs and OTs. You see them using it all the time, but there's definitely a lot of controversy with it as far as speech pathologists using it to rehab the swallow. So believe me, I've been the ultimate skeptic on e-STEM for a while now, but uh, my buddies Rick and Russ from AmpCare Uh, They swindled me into taking their online CEU course a few months back, and I'm not going to lie, you guys, it was so good. Like, I was totally hooked. And so Rick is a fellow SLP, just like the rest of us, Um, but Russ is a physical therapist with an extensive knowledge, e-STEM, that he's used as a modality throughout his entire PT career. So, like I said, I took this course a while back uh, when I was actually studying for my board certification exam. Their CEU course is considered an advanced course. So for anyone that needs advanced CEUs, if you're working towards your BCS, uh, hop on this course. But anyways, the entire first half of the course is like all about basic muscle physiology, the makeup of the actual swallowing muscle fibers, a killer review of the cranial nerves, probably like the most elaborate review that I've had since grad school. And I'm pretty sure I didn't pay this close attention in grad school too the anatomy and physiology, but like I said, I was totally hooked on this course. 
Um, and you, you guys know I keep it real. I don't sugarcoat things here. So another thing that I just super appreciated about this course is they go into detail about the populations that are best served with this treatment and the populations that should not undergo e-stim. So it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment, but it has shown some awesome outcomes as far as improving the swallow. And in their course, they also discuss why they use the electrode size and shape that they do, the various parameters on the unit, which it does vary from other Easton manufacturers, so that's important to note. So, since Rick and Russ are super nice guys, they're offering 50 bucks off their CEU course exclusively for Swallier Pride listeners. So, they have a bunch of upcoming live courses. There's one September 30th in Alexandria, Louisiana. There's one October 13th. There's actually two October 13th. I guess they're going to divide and conquer here, but October 13th, one in Fort Worth, Texas, and one in Vegas, and then also October 20th in Oklahoma City. And then they also have dates still need to be confirmed, but they are having live courses coming up in Seattle, LA, Phoenix, San Diego, and Dallas. So I would totally highly recommend you guys get to a live course if you can. These guys are so fun and they just make it really easy to understand this super complex info. Um, so if you're near any one of those cities, yeah, head to this course. But the cost of the live conference is usually 325 bucks, but 275 for Swallow Your Pride listeners. And if your facility does purchase the actual device, so the actual e-stim unit costs $649 regularly. Your training will be further discounted down to 200 bucks. But if you can't get to a live course, they're also offering 50 bucks off their online course, which that's a course that I took and it's still, it's phenomenal, super entertaining. And just, like I said, it's a, this is a great course, but course will only cost you a hundred bucks. You can sit and watch it on your couch with a glass of wine and get 0.8 advanced CEUs. So also, not going to lie, the training manual that comes with this course is really good too. I referred back to it so many times when I was studying for my BCS exam. Just it's a great anatomy review, cranial nerve review. Yeah, that manual is great as well. So go to swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to register for any of these courses. And also, if you just head over to their website, you guys, they have some really cool videos showing the e-STEM unit at work. And they also have a review of all the literature that they have to support their FDA cleared device and protocol. And yes, I am working on getting them on the podcast very, very soon. But anyways, go check out swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to check out their courses and sign up for this training. All right, I can totally not believe that it's October already, but I guess most importantly, I cannot believe that we're already one month in with the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and I know I keep saying it, I know I keep beating a dead horse, but I'm beyond grateful for all your guys' support with all this. This has just been the funnest thing ever. I know that's great grammar, the most fun thing ever, but... Anyways, I cannot believe that we had over 25,000 downloads in the month of September. Just saying that totally freaks me out because I really just thought that like a hundred of my closest friends were going to listen to this thing and maybe pass it on to their CFs or students. So it's totally wild that that many of you are listening to me. So not only did we have 25,000 downloads, but we had 12,000 unique listeners listen to this podcast in the month of September. So that's 
pretty cool and also speaks to, I guess, the need to be getting more of this dysphagia evidence-based practice assessment treatment out there. So I just want to read today's iTunes review of the week. Uh, This is by Aaron R. It says, Calling All Medical SLPs. This podcast is an invaluable tool, which is ultimately changing the dysphagia practices within my own practice and facility. I can't think of an easier way to obtain the most current information and research available in terms that are both fun and accessible to clinicians, ranging from students to CFs to the experienced clinician. Thank you for taking the time to share this information and making it accessible to all in hopes that we eventually standardize dysphagia practices with relevant and up-to-date assessment and treatment procedures among treating clinicians. Well, thank you, Erin, for listening and for wanting to learn more. So keep listening, you guys. we got some really cool people coming up. We have Dr. Katrina Steele is coming up soon. Dr. Jonathan Aviv is coming up soon from Columbia. Um, my buddy Edgar Vincent Clark is coming up soon. So lots of really fun interviews. So again, thank you guys so much. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes if you love this. Hi, Megan. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a nice treat to be on here. Love, I love, love, love this podcast. I know. I'm excited. Addicted to it. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to get you on. Yeah, I'm just, I'm excited to interview all the cool people that we've gotten to interview so far. So got some good ones. All right. So tell everyone who you are. My name is Megan Nosel. I am from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I've been working in outpatient setting for about a little over a year and a half. Before that, I worked in skilled nursing. I started an outpatient program at the skilled nursing, so it kind of helped me segue into outpatient a little easier. I... I'm a big fan of anything head, neck, cancer related, and I've been a board member for Larry's Speakeasy for about a year or so. That's the nonprofit organization that helps laryngectomies and their caregivers. I am the co-trainer for ArcJ program, which is a Trismus intervention course, and I created uh, a website for patients and caregivers of SLPs. It has a variety of tabs on that website that's about right. All right. Yeah. So what sparked your passion for head and neck cancer? Well, when I was a clinical graduate student working in different settings before I graduated, I worked at UNC Hospital with Brian Kanapke, who's like the man (laughs) that I think of when I think of head and neck cancer. So I was really lucky to work with him and he just showed me a whole new world. You know, I never worked with a head and neck cancer patient. I didn't actually think I would like it. Before I entered that clinical rotation, I thought I'm going to be really sad all of time. But then I, I just really found it rewarding. I didn't find it as sad as I thought it would be. So ever since then, that was 2012. And ever since then, I've just loved anything head neck. <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool. That's an interesting what you said. It's not as scary or sad as yeah. you thought. Yeah. You know, I think that's I know that's why I love what I do, too, because I feel like I bring kind of a glimmer of hope to some of our patients. Yeah. Like sometimes these patients are just used to getting horrible news, horrible news, horrible news. News, and then if you can kind of come in and tell them, no, there's things we can do and to help you improve and exactly. life's not over. So even the smallest change can make a difference to these patients. That's what's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You're like one of those that's super well-versed in the research <laughs> and super well-versed in the literature. I don't know about that. I try. Yeah. It's hard to keep up with sometimes. 
it's very hard to keep up with. Do you think, did that stem from grad school or have you just kind of always had the, I've always been a researcher. Research when I was, um, yeah. when I was, a, uh, I was actually, I'm actually a former high school teacher. So I have yeah. my master's cool. in education and I did research back then. So I just don't think it's ever gone out of my system. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just like to read. And so I spend my nights after my, after I put my kids to bed, I just get up on my computer and read up on something I'm interested in. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. But, yeah. I'm just always when, when people are like so immersed in the literature, you always wonder, you're like, do they have a PhD? <laughs> are they like this closet person behind the computer? So no, I tend to keep yeah. like a lot of stuff. Like I can just like go to something because I, I keep, notes of research on certain topics so. okay good Th that's your secret yeah though. you know i, I yeah. basically just copy and paste <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes, yes. <laughs> yeah perfect yeah I, I you know in terms of head neck cancer though i started researching about six years ago when um, my supervisor at the time um i was at a during a clinical rotation at unc asked me to do a presentation on trismus to like the entire department. And I was really nervous about that. Um, so I didn't want to look like an idiot. And I researched the heck out of Trisma. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I realized that there's not much out there on the topic. And it kind of what it was kind of cool to me to like, start looking into something that no one else knew about. I like I like doing that. I don't know. It's just like, ooh, you know, <laughs> I, I know I know something about this. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then I read yeah, about yeah. radiation fibrosis syndrome, and then I, that just opened a whole can of worms for me. It, it gave me so many epiphanies about things that we're doing in, in um, with dysphagia and head neck cancer patients. So. Well, I think that's what's so cool about our field. You know, for for some reason, we just have this horrible disconnect between researchers and clinicians and what we know. But it's so interesting talking to people. You're like, oh, we knew that 25 years ago. Like we have the research from 25 years ago, and then you're saying, well, no, we really barely have yeah. any research about it. Actually, you know, I was so. just talking to an academic today at UNC, and we were just having this great conversation about how. You know, clinicians really need the researchers, and the researchers really need the clinician. Absolutely, absolutely. But there's not enough collaboration, at least that I'm seeing. You know, like no, there's not. And that's there's the sad not. thing about it. It's, it seems like there's kind of a a divide. You know, it's us against them, and yeah, them yeah. against us. And I just feel like we. I wish we could bring it together a little bit. I don't know what's stopping. Yeah, them. yeah. I don't. I don't know that I feel like it's a divide as much as I. You know, I don't know, for some reason, I have this weird, like, I know kind of all about business marketing and things like that. And one of, you know, the big, big thing is you're supposed to create, you know, a percentage of, of your content, and then you're supposed to spend a large percentage of it mm. promoting it. And it's like, I almost feel like the researchers just spend 100% of their time researching and very little actually promoting it and getting it out there to us. You know, and then we go to these conferences sometimes and we don't make the best decisions about which courses we go to or, you know, there's a conversation going online tonight about, you know, everyone's just scrambling to get CEUs. So what's like the cheapest CEU package to get, yeah. you know, so so it's it, it goes both ways. I wish there was a, a way for researchers to broadcast their findings more, but then also what can we do to get clinicians to actually go to the courses that interest them instead of just... right. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny that you say that, though, because 
the woman that I was speaking with, she said that um, she's scared to publish sometimes because she sometimes thinks that yeah she thinks that sometimes her work isn't practical and she she's I think she's been burned a little bit by people maybe saying that it's, I don't have the time to do this or you know this is this is just not working with my page my patients I'm not see, you know I'm not seeing what you're seeing I, not user friendly and she was saying that she does have some fears about that and i i wonder if we create that too <laughs> i know i know i'm sure we do i'm more ruthless man i mean yeah yeah there's a difference between thinking critically but in a kind way yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah. you know it's a bunch of women <laughs> i know i know i know i know the guy the guys don't have these issues no. yeah the guys are so yeah. friendly i feel like we're yeah, we love the guys. I know, I know. It's always the women that are like, God, how dare you have that in the discussions? Yeah. Oh my exactly. gosh. Well, and I wanted to mention that I also take a lot of extra courses. Yeah, I've yeah. been studying for three years now, just pre-med courses. That has helped so much. I just realized I didn't have the the background knowledge to understand a lot of the things that I was reading. So yeah. that that's been helpful too kind of made me it's like sparked my interest and made me go out and try to find something that's applicable to what we do yeah yeah that's I don't know that anybody else has said that Megan I think you're the first one that's voluntarily tried to take pre-med courses (laughs) torture torture (laughs) yeah yeah but but it, it speaks volumes to you know you see the people online that always write the very thought out educated intelligent posts and well, there's your answer. I mean, you're you're studying pre med stuff, you know, on your own. But then there's also the people that, like we just talked about, that don't even want to spend, you know, a hundred bucks on a good quality CEU course, you know. Yeah. And 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 I don't think there. I don't think that's just what's wrong with our profession. I think there's a lot of professions that are like that. You know, no mm-hmm. one's going to just hand you the information for free. We have to go out and obtain it ourselves and if you're truly passionate about this it sh- it shouldn't be a burden to you yeah you know you yeah. shouldn't I, I know we're all on incomes and things like that but I I just don't think you should really limit yourself in that way so for me I have to have a, a reason a purpose for taking this and yeah it's not for someone to rush me because I think I need to get a certain amount of right that is the worst thing to do right right maybe so. that's why we're seeing some of that I know People just feel rushed. They don't feel motivated to to do. Yeah. They don't have like a vision. Yeah. Yeah. Why should I do this? Right. I don't know. Right. Find your vision, people. Find your passion. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, I guess when I think about working with head and neck cancer patients, I think about how you have to be really comfortable with risk management. Okay. And these probably are not the patients to be like really conservative with oftentimes because they're kind of have to look at the big picture and really try to look at quality of life. And you're going to have those functional aspirators. You're going to have people who really struggle with swallowing kind of have to work through them and try to like problem solve more than restrict because I mean I guess it's not so different than any other patient I think a lot of patients would rather have quality of life I'm not sure if I have met very many patients who who are like just so terrified of aspirating and having aspiration Mm -hmm. pneumonia I think a lot of it is the restrictions we put on them yeah I think there's you know still a lot of SLPs out there that are uneducated about aspiration and you know I know there's been a couple good blog posts about it lately but I think we instill fear in them 
you know, oh my gosh, you have one episode of aspiration, you're toast, you know? Yeah. So that's a big part of our job too, is to explain, no, everybody does it. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's part of our bias as SLPs. We're so drawn to that. And we're just, this is what our services are based on. So I really feel like we don't really do such a great job treating head neck cancer more than, more so than managing. I tend to think of, let's manage this the way that you want to manage it. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. All right. So we're going to do like a head and neck cancer 101 little crash course here. So and I'm excited for this too, because I personally have very little experience with head and neck cancer. Tell us where to start. What are some of the big, you know, you say never underestimate the medical chart. So what should we be looking for in the chart? Well, I think when people have come to me and asking questions about their head and neck cancer patients and what they should do, I'm always asking for information about when was their last, well, first of all, how were they treated? Were they treated with surgery? Were they treated with radiation? Did they have a combination of treatments, maybe surgery and radiation or radiation and chemo? So there's just a variety of ways to treat cancer patients. And it's really important to know which treatment pathway they received, they went down, because that tells you a little bit about what to expect. So if you have a patient who has just had surgery, removal of a tumor, you're going to have more fibrotic scars, but you might be able to work with that a lot better than someone who's undergone radiation and is experiencing radiation fibrosis. And that is a completely different beast. So let's back up. So what would fibrotic scars be like? I personally have had surgery several times. And if you think about the scars that replace the skin, they are flexible. You know, um, it depends on a lot of different factors, like the patient's age, or maybe the patient has diabetes, so they're not healing very well. Um, It does depend on other factors like that. But for the most part, I think of a a fibrotic scar as something that can be, you can work with that. That's a positive. Okay. I, I would much rather work with someone with a fibrotic scar than someone with radiation fibrosis. So, yeah, so so tell us what the difference with that would be. Radiation fibrosis is a progressive, insidious deposition of fibrous tissues uh, that basically your tissues turn into like a very stubborn, retractile tissue, and it, it gets worse over time. So especially if you've had something mean 30 grades of radiation to 60 grades of radiation, it just gets worse and worse if you don't intervene. Okay. So it's not like scars you know, the fibrotic scars that you get from surgery where you, you can work with them, you can stretch them, you can have a little bit more give. Radiation fibrosis makes the tissue brittle. Mm-hmm. Instead of collagen that makes that flexibility in the tissue, you've got this fibrin, which makes it really hard. All right. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't want that. You don't want that. <laughs> I know if you're not in it, like immersed in the head and neck world, you know, you hear these, I hear these words kind of thrown around all the time. Like, I think I know what that means. So yeah. yeah. So thank you for clarifying all that for us. Yeah. One is better than the other. That's for sure. Okay. All right. So our options are surgery, radiation, and then I'm assuming chemo has a component. Chemo. Yeah. So that's pretty toxic to the whole system. You okay. will see certain side effects with that as well. But you can expect that the patient is more fatigued, has nausea, is just kind of more lethargic than someone who has not undergone chemo. So it helps to know what to expect. And that's why I, I ask those questions. You know, what, what treatment did the patient receive? Where where did the patient receive the treatment? If they had surgery or if they had radiation, what tissue and what musculature was targeted? Yeah, cool. You know exactly where the where the problem's going to you're going to be facing. 
So what else about the chart review? When was their final treatment? That's a big one for me. If they had a full course of radiation and they just finished a few weeks ago, like three weeks ago, I can expect that they, they're not experiencing too much radiation fibrosis at this point. You're going to see it later on. But Okay. How far out does that usually happen? So the research says anywhere from three to six months is when you start really seeing radiation fibrosis set in. Wow. Okay. And it, it can progress over that first year. So at about the end of the year, you see kind of like, but it never goes away. So it's a lifetime thing. So people have who have undergone radiation, especially at the point of 30 grays to 60 grays, so a half course versus a full course of treatment, you're going to see that retractile, stubborn fibrotic tissue at some point. And that's the tricky thing. You might not be seeing the whole picture yet. And then you start to wonder, will I be seeing this before the patient has to be discharged? And that's, that's the tricky part. And how do I prepare for something when the function's normal or near normal? Do they suggest that the patient wait until they are experiencing the symptoms or you you probably want to get them in ahead of time to teach them the exercises? That's a good question. I have done so much research on that question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I have spent so I have spent years yeah. Yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, so when is the best time to start treatment? Because I hear about people doing treatment uh, or you know, dysphagia exercise exercises before the start of radiation. And I Really, just from a logical, physiological standpoint, I, I question why, because you don't see radiation fibrosis yet. You you see it, you see cancer, and you see you know maybe pain, and you see maybe a little bit of loss of function, but you're not. There's no genetic mutations happening yet. There's no tissue uh, changes yet. So why are you treating something yeah. that you're not seeing yet? And the re- the research actually supports that. Okay. There's some good research out there by Polly, Nina Polly. She's a researcher in Sweden. She's a otolaryngologist, so an ENT. There's a lot of research on this idea. And so if it's not before radiation, what about during radiation? Well, during radiation, you start seeing some changes. And definitely the you have the genetic mutations already occurring and taking place. But again, you're not seeing it fully yet. There is research to support the idea of starting treatment as soon as radiation starts. So you can prepare the patient and you can educate the patient on the signs and the symptoms and start to kind of develop a, an exercise regimen just to help them acclimate to exercise and get them used to doing this. But again, you're not going to treating the loss of function so much at that point. You're more preparing and educating and providing that skilled service so that the patient does discharge before you get to see the radiation fibrosis, they're ready. Yeah. They're prepared. And maybe it's a few months later, but maybe they can give you a call and say, hey, now I'm starting to have some problems and I need my regimen, my exercise regimen modified. You bring yeah. it back in. So you're not they're not lost. They don't fall through the crack. Yeah. Cool. We talked about it's important to know which kind of treatment they had, if they had chemo or radiation or surgery or any combination. Definitely. What about what about staging? Is that important? The stage is not as important as what kind of treatment the patient has had. So a lot of times, I just took an informal poll in one of the um, head and neck cancer forums. Mm-hmm. What stage were you diagnosed? I want to say 80% was stage three or four. Okay. That's pretty... Uh, much the kind of patient you're going to see. I mean, you're going to see every once in a while that 
stage one, which is someone who's just pushing their way through for an evaluation because they know something is definitely wrong. Yeah, yeah. Those are people who are typically very motivated. Yeah. But then you have patients who ignore signs and symptoms or people are misdiagnosed. And so it's mostly stage three or four. Doesn't really matter too much. Okay. It just matters. Did they have radiation? Did they have surgery? Did they have chemo? Did they have combinations? When was their last treatment? Exactly where did they receive that treatment? And those are probably the three things I would target. Okay. Let's see. Anything else in, as far as the chart review? I, I guess just uh, identifying how how much the patient that is at risk for getting certain like and seeing certain side effects of treat so oral mucositis and xerostomia trismus okay things like that those kinds of things appear in patients who have oral or oropharyngeal cancer maybe not so much in other cancers so that's helpful to know exactly what kind of cancer they have let's back up what exactly is mucositis oral mucositis Oh boy. Basically, the it's an inflammation of the, the tissue, the epithelial tissue of the mouth, the oral cavity, and it happens because of the radiation, basically stripping that those epithelial cells and making it difficult for the patient to heal effectively because with those epithelial cells go a lot of great oral flora that helps keep the oral cavity in balance. So you see inflammation, you see more patients with bacterial infections like thrush and things like that because the cyst's out of whack. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what happens when you have radiation. It doesn't really, gets everything. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you said mucositis. What was one of the other things? Xerostomia. Xerostomia, which is? Dry mouth. Dry mouth. And then the last one is trismus, which is, what's that? That's when you have impaired jaw range of motion. Okay. So it affects things like speech intelligibility and the oral phase and making it really difficult for people to do dental dental care, get dental care or perform oral hygiene care. And probably the most important and sometimes not thought about is it affects airway patency. So Oh, okay. This is really, it's a big one for these patients because often they have tumors, um, they have reoccurrences. A lot of times they have to be intubated. You can't open that patient's mouth. Surgeon's going to open, open it one way or another. Right, right. They're going to go down the nose. Yeah. So it's a big problem. So how is that different from, I guess, like you think of like a, like a TMJ, like a lock jaw? Well, TMJ is disorder is disorder in itself that can result in trismus, but trismus isn't necessarily caused by TMJ disorder. That explains it. Yeah. yeah. So that's more of a problem with the joint, whereas people with head and neck cancer or people with spastic dysarthria from their CPA or Parkinson, they have an actual musculature problem. So it's not so much the joint. Okay. It's more the the tissue. Okay. So more at the muscle level. Okay. So let's get into the eval process here. I'm sure this kind of seems like a loaded question, but. No, I think it pretty much dovetails right into with your other podcast. <laughs> yeah. 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 But um, yeah, I guess I'm more of the opinion that I like to get an objective and I like to get a subjective and not necessarily, I, I do a clinical bedside exam, but I'm not crazy about it. Um, I do, I use the MASA cancer version with head neck cancer patients, but I also like the eat 10 first subjective, yeah. how the patient feels about their swallow function. I really, I tend to like the eat 10 for cancer patients. I try to use it for every patient I have. 
not just cancer patients. I think it's important to focus also on the quality of life. And I think that's a good one for quality of life. I look at oral hygiene, the big one, because these patients should be followed by a dentist throughout their cancer treatment course. So before they receive treatment, during and after, these patients are more vulnerable for, they're more susceptible to getting abscesses, cavities, and dentists can help minimize the effects of oral mucositis, xerostomia, and just make their lives a little more easier in terms of oral care. And of course, identifying patients who are at risk for osteoradionecrosis, which is a very scary condition, and you really don't want to be the person to break someone's jaw. Yeah. You really need to know how much of a risk are they for osteoradionecrosis. Okay. And what is that specifically? So that's when the jaw, the mandible, um, or the maxilla breaks down because of the amount of radiation a person's received. So it actually makes the jaw brittle. Okay. And they're more susceptible to fractures. So you don't want to be doing you know, trismus exercises. Gotcha. Or maybe even swallowing exercises, you know, with someone who has that heightened risk. I guess, I guess talk about the EAT-10 a little bit more. The EAT-10 is more geared to quality of life questions. And it's free. You can go online and, and download a copy of it for yourself. I think something like a score of over six, I'd have to check, may, means that the, per, the person is more at risk for, has the potential of, of having dysphagia. And it has excellent test, retest reliability. So okay. you, can, you can kind of have get that baseline and work with the patient and see if the quality of life has improved, you know, just from the patient, the patient standpoint. What else would be helpful to know? It's the validity and reliability of the eating assessment tool, so the 810. They had oropharyngeal and esophageal dysphagia and a history of head and neck cancer. And then they had controls that were healthy swallowers. This is more like how the patient feels. And it's good questions. I think it's questions that you that you could ask yeah. during your clinical bedside exam too. So I just like the questions a lot. Yeah. I like the speech intelligibility assessments, things like the speech handicap index. Love that. Yeah. Um, that's free. Uh, there's some good research on that. Yeah. Valid with the head neck cancer population. What other assessment tools do you like? I like the French A dysarthria assessment. Pretty good. Okay. The Robertson dysarthria profile is good. I like to see how much of an impact intelligibility as far as speech intelligibility. I, I use, I assess for that. I look at trismus. So I know that between the 35 millimeters and 45 millimeters, it's within functional limits for someone's job. There's a trismus severity scale, which was created in like 2006. And I, is that something you do or is that? Within functional limits, you're going to see usually with these patients, Okay. but it's good to get a baseline because if they've had surgery or something like that. Okay. Their range of motion, their jaw range of motion could be impaired. So you can work through that. I do a pain assessment because a lot of the exercises I do with these patients could cause them pain. And I want to make sure their pain is managed. And I want to make sure they're able to communicate their pain levels. I use like a 10-point pain scale. I try to look for pain patterns. So when do they feel pain? Where is it? What kind of pain? When does it typically occur? So that I can give really good information to the, the doctor that, hey, this person's having pain and I really want to make sure that they can actively participate in treatment. It's a big barrier, especially with things like oral mucositis, thrush, trismus. So in order to, to get your treatment in, have it be effective, pain has to be managed for these people. Probably one of the most important things you can do. Stay on top of pain. I guess I also look at cognitive status. Will they be able to yeah. do the exercises? Because 
so much of what we do requires them to do exercises outside of therapy. There you go. All right. Do they, you know, what kind of support do they need to, yeah. to do these exercises out, outside of therapy? So I do something like a mocha or a cat just to, just to make sure, just to kind of get the person's strengths and weaknesses, especially someone is going through fatigue and chemo, and nausea, a lot of things that can impact their ability to do the exercises independently, take pictures and videos and whatever they need to, to make sure that they can do these and they feel confident in doing the exercises. And then I, I look for referrals. Head neck cancer patients often come with edema and pain and PTs, lymphedema specialists can really help and reinforce what you're doing and all work together to have the whole system addressed. A lot of head and neck cancer patients also have back and shoulder problems as well, posture, things like that. Just try to look at it as a look at the whole system. Where, where else can I send them so that we can really get the best outcomes as possible? This is great. All right. Let me ask you, because I know there was a post about this today about, oh, about chemo God. brain. Oh. Is that <laughs> what do we have any role, any cognitive communication role in well, chemo brain? Uh, you know, you probably read the post, but some people think yes. Yeah. I think this is something similar to what we what we're seeing in radiation fibrosis syndrome. We just don't have all the knowledge yet, and so we don't really know how to treatment how to treat these patients. And so we're kind of experimenting. You know, the fact that someone said Michael Stubblefield is training me to to do something um, like cognitive treatment for chemo brain makes me stop and think about it because I trust that man's judgment, but. I've done some research on it, and I, I don't know how, I mean, it's it's a metabolic toxicity issue. It's not like a brain injury. And so how do you how, how do you assess it? Because a lot of our assessments are normed on CVA patients, dementia patients. And so what do the scores really tell you? They're going to, they're, I mean, you could take them for face value and see which deficits that person is exhibiting. But I don't know how you would really feel very comfortable right now. I think compensatory strategies just because I just don't see the evidence yet. So now we've got our eval done. So now where do we go from here? Once I once I do the eval and I have an objective and I have an, a subjective and I know their cognitive status and their pain and so forth, I have a really, I try to have a good discussion with the patient and the caregiver or the main caregiver about what do they want out of this therapy? Do they want to go from NPO to something that's safe, mildly safe? Do they want to eat for pleasure? Do they want to try rehab? You know, what are their goals? Because we all have big hearts in this profession. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've tried, we probably tend to, to see patients as our family members and, you know, we feel for them and we sympathize. We want the best for them, but they have a lot of things that they're dealing with right now. And I, I try to accept what they want. I use that to, to guide my treatment. Yeah, which I think is what everyone should do. I but think so. Sometimes we don't. <laughs> I think we all have good intentions. I think we all have good intentions. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. But I think when you start working with head and neck cancer patients, I think quality of life just kind of really becomes a strong factor. More so than I've, I mean, I've worked with all kinds of patients in the past, and I just don't feel like such a head, like, Head neck cancer, their quality of life is, is paramount. I mean, I think quality of life should be paramount to everyone, but I don't know. I just it just really slaps you in the face with these patients. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good realization to figure out what their goals are. Because like you said, we is quality of life most important to them, in which case they may be at a much higher aspiration risk. Right. Or do they not care about quality of life? Do they not care? You know, they just want to ward off aspiration. All they want to do is the exercises. You know, that's going to drastically change your treatment plan, which direction you're going. So Exactly. I mean, some patients are really full of hope and they're really gung-ho and they're like, I'm going to beat this and I'm going to get back to swelling normal and I'm going to try my my hardest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then some patients are just, they have a loss of hope and just try to do, we just look at risks. It's it's managing risks. How much are you you willing to risk? What do you want the most? Yeah. So I think remembering also the patient's likely in a lot of pain, they're overwhelmed, they're depressed. It's a heavy situation to be in. And probably our exercises and our recommendations are not at the forethought of their mind. But if you address, if you ask them what their complaints are, and what their concerns are, and you address those concerns, they're going to think, they're going to keep, they're going to keep your recommendations in mind. Yeah. Not too much information, not throwing everything at them, you know, because they're getting a lot of information from everyone else. So I think if we just focus on what is your main concern today? That's what I try to do little by little. I think that's a great approach. You know, we can generalize that to a lot of treatments that we do, you know, because a lot of these patients, like you said, I mean, just going through the eval that you do, you know, you're targeting speech intelligibility, dysarthria, swallowing, you know, there's so many different components to it. And, you know, if they're already down in the dumps or just depressed, and then you're throwing exercises at all different angles from them, it's only gonna make it worse. So like you said, what is your main concern for today? Okay, that's what we'll work on today. So I think that's a great treatment approach. Yeah, exactly. Little by little. And hearing what the caregiver, you know, their concerns too, you know, it has to be kind of a collaborative effort. Just try to collaborate because the patient knows his or her body the best, just there to kind of help them along with their goals however I can. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. We did talk about some some treatment barriers a little bit. We talked about xerostomia, mucositis. What's the other? What's the D one? Dysgusia. (laughs) Yeah, that's a funny word. <laughs> okay, say that again. Not saying that one. <laughs> no, I just looked at it. I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> I've heard disguisia, dis- yeah, disguisia. I don't know that I've ever even seen that word before. D y s g e u s i a. Okay. Truth be told, I had to look that one up. <laughs> okay, all right. Good. When I first started. <laughs> okay, I don't feel so bad now. Don't feel bad. Okay. <laughs> I asked my husband to say that he's from Poland and he just totally butchered. It was, it was so funny. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, that's just a altered taste sensation from, okay. from radiation, from chemo, you know, with these, with most of these side effects, you know, xerostomia, oral mucositis, dysgusia, SLP has very little options to help these patients. It's really not, not within our, it's not, it's not that it's not within our scope. It's just not, there's no protocol in treatment for these side effects. And so it's best to really leave it then. Gotcha. Yeah. No, no, our role. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it, don't try baking soda and, you know, all, all kinds of concoctions. You might be messing with the patient's delicate oral balance. So, yeah. you know, just chemistry and organic chemistry with, with these patients. It's so fragile. And now I, I hear a lot of things about some home remedies for these kinds of things. And I just think this is not this is not something you should play with. This is really yeah. really should be best left to the end. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. So I think the one thing that we could 
possibly change and have an impact on is just Trismus. Yeah. Okay. But um, that's my that's my take. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Trismus. Well, according to research, about eighty percent of oral and oral pharyngeal patients who receive radiation get Trismus. They acquire Trismus at some point, and this is often overlooked because, like I said. You know, radiation fibrosis occurs down the road. It's usually after we've discharged the patient and the patient is just not a good person to recognize the problem without someone telling them, hey, you might have this thing called trismus down the road. They're going to think, well, it's just, you know, I just feel crappy and it's just it's just part of the progression, the, the disease. Without really knowing the signs and the symptoms, the patient is probably not the best person to first identify that they're having a problem. So what exactly are the signs and symptoms? Tightness in range of motion in their mouth. Maybe you were able to eat a hamburger, but now you're having a hard time eating a, a granola bar. Or worse, you can't brush your teeth effectively anymore. You can't get back there and, and get the food that you're pocketing. You're losing weight. You have pain because you have loss of range of motion. Tightness. I mean, just general tightness in the mouth. So there's a lot of good research out there uh, about how Trismus impairs quality of life, but there's not very much on, about protocols, treatment protocol. And so that's what I've, I've tried to do with the ArcJ program. Not so much make a protocol, but at least steer clinicians down the right path of evaluating someone and looking at all these different factors and looking at active and passive range of motion of the jaw. So people might have heard of the Therabyte. Mm-hmm. That is a passive mechanical jaw mobility device. It just, you just sit there and you let it open your mouth. But something like the Chewy Tube is more active range of motion. And so that is, you are actively using your muscles and your range of motion to create that rotary chew that sometimes people lose when they have trismus. They, they revert to vertical chew. Gotcha. Interesting. You know, trismus is just from radiation fibrosis. It's a small, it's a, a different problem, but I think of it as kind of a microcosm of what we see in the swallowing dysfunction with head and neck cancer. Trismus is often overlooked. We look at dysphagia and head and neck cancer, but I don't see a, a lot of, of research in our field about how radiation fibrosis impacts the swallow. And I, I think we're going to start seeing it soon, I hope. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I do read about fibrosis, but there's all kinds of, there's different kinds of fibrosis and, you know, scarring fibrosis, that radiation fibrosis. There's a reason why certain treatment techniques don't work. This because of radiation fibrosis. Yeah. The name of your program is ArcJ. Where did that come from? Ugh. Well, Brian and I <laughs> worked on that for a long time, but it basically stands for amplification, resistance, and kinetics of the jaw. All right. Those are all the things you're doing when you're working to fight against trismus. So give us like a quick little little rundown of it. So amplification, what do you do there? You're trying to increase the opening of the jaw. Okay. Okay. Opening of the mouth. Resistance. You can do all kinds of exercises to actively resist. Maybe your hand or another device so that you're activating those muscles. And then kinetics, working the rotary chew with active range of motion exercises. Those are all, those all help to have the jaw move. So if you miss one, like if you just focus on doing the therabyte, you're not really activating the muscles to address the atrophy that can happen when you have radiation fibrosis want to look at it from all angles yeah yeah of course okay so let's hang on one second so you all know how much i totally value continuing education and well basically the whole reason why i started this podcast anyways is because i want the good information circulating out there i want the evidence-based 
practice information circulating out there. So for this month of October, I am partnering with Carolina Speech Pathology. They are a mobile fees provider and an ASHA approved CEU provider to offer an exclusive discount for Swallow Your Pride listeners. So I chose to partner with CSP because of their focus on topics related to dysphagia. So included in this offer is the Understanding Fees course taking place on November 3rd in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and November 17th in Richmond, Virginia. So both of these courses are taught by Selena Reese. She's a board certified swallowing specialist with many years of experience performing fees. So this is not a fees training course, but basically just learning how to understand and interpret what you're seeing, which I think is great. I think we need so many more courses like this out there. And then also, do you remember our fan favorite advice from episode one? Well, he is also teaching a one-day course in Raleigh, North Carolina on December 1st titled Evidence-Based Practice in Dysphagia Rehabilitation. That sounds incredible. I could just sit and listen to Ed talk for hours. I'm sure it's going to be a great course. But Ed will describe updates in research and highlight evidence-based techniques for rehabilitating swallowing. So everyone's always asking for more and more and more treatment, more and more rehab. Here you go. Go see Ed December 1st in Raleigh. You can find more information on these courses at www.carolinafees.com. If you register during the month of October, you'll receive 25% off the CEU courses with the coupon code SYP for Swallow Your Pride. So go get your learn on, kids. All right. Okay, so we've, we've kind of talked about everything as far as head and neck cancer. Now, what are, I guess, some of the go-to treatment techniques, treatment strategies, exercises... 2013, there was a systematic review of literature on dysphagia related to head and neck. And what they found was we have very little randomized controlled studies, no double blind, two single blind. Um, one was Carnaby and the other one was Langmore. The most evidence-based practices that we have to treat dysphagia in these four head and neck cancer patients are Jaw exercises, pharyngocise, which is a combination of different exercises such as vocal glides, tongue press, effort, effortful swallow, and then trismus exercises. We have research on effortful swallow, super superglottic, Thaco, Mendelssohn. So I would I would stick to those based on the deficits that you're seeing. Of course, you know you're just not throwing all of them at the patient. Being very thoughtful about how you choose exercises. And the other most important thing is to, to consider the intensity and the frequency of these exercises. That's big, yeah. Yeah, you know, you just can't, that, that's, where, that's where our skilled services come, not just right. saying, hey, I'm gonna give you a paper, I'm gonna show you how to do these exercises. No, you need to actually modify the intensity, modify the frequency. The problem with these patients is that they're notorious for adherent to exercise regimens and for understandable reasons a lot of times they're dealing with a lot of pain fatigue nausea the overwhelming reality they're facing and so the trick is the, the key here is really getting these patients motivated to do these exercises and sometimes it's not just motivated it's getting everything else aligned and managed so that they can yeah. do these exercises and that's where interdisciplinary collaboration comes into play, talking to the MD about pain, referring them to the dentist, referring them to the PT, referring them to the lymphedema specialist, getting all your ducks in a row so that this patient can be successful. 
So let's talk about Fringo size too. So I, if, if people aren't familiar with it, it was created by Dr. Carnaby. Is it commercially available? How do I get my hands on Fringo size? In her research study in 2012, she does detail what she, what uh, the Fringo size consisted of. So if you know, like you know how to do that swallow, you know about the falsetto exercises, the tongue press, that's a little vague there. And I know Trismus exercises, but she was again vague with that. So there's a there's a little bit of an outline in her study. I should note that she studied these patients during radiation. Okay. And so she she saw good results with these the small group, fifty eight patients. But time and time again I see research articles saying that more research is more um, randomized control studies are required. Yeah. Um, as well as, well, we saw good results anywhere from one to three months status post-treatment, but then it started declining. I understand why. Yeah. That's at the point when radiation fibrosis sets in. So um, there's, I think there's an explanation for that. So are we really helping the patient? This is, this is where all my questions come in. You know, if, he's, if these studies say, well, yeah, these, these were helpful for patients, you know, between dur- during um, radiation therapy and um, at the point of six months status post, are we really, yeah. are we actually really helping? just because the radiation fibrosis doesn't set in until three months. So you're probably not seeing the true effects of radiation. Yeah. I, I do see that a lot in the research. People over over and over again saying that they see really good results at first, but then they, they just can't stop that decline. So, so what do you guys do at that point? If I could, I would research, I would create a research study with a small number of patients who I knew were committed to the exercises because the problem with these studies is a lot of these uh, study participants are not compliant with the regimen. So you can't really have, you can't really say anything about whether or not our exercises work. If only 30% of already a small group of participants were compliant with the exercises. Right. So if I, if I could, I would just take a small number who I knew we're going to be compliant. And from what I know with radiation fibrosis syndrome, you have to do these exercises with intensity and frequency to actually make small gains. If you miss so much as one exercise per day, you'll just keep reverting. Oh, wow. If I, if when I work with a a Trismus patient, I want them doing these exercises that I prescribe before every meal so that they can have they can maximize their jaw opening. They can maximize their mastication, their rotary chew. If they attempt to do to eat a meal without doing those exercises, they're they've already reverted. So I think it's I, I my theory is we're not prescribing intense, frequent exercises, and or these patients aren't doing it yeah. to the right intensity and to the right. And I, and I think that can almost be spread across a lot of populations that yeah. we treat. Yeah. A lot of times we have no idea how you were just telling them to wag their tongue back and forth 10 times. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not doing any type of resistance or we are, but then we're not tracking intensity, frequency, like you said. Yeah, so. I mean, you should, I, I always tell my patients, I, I want it to feel uncomfortable, but not painful. I want, it to be un- I want it to be on like a, a scale of four out of 10. If you're reaching one or zero, I need to do my job and I need to make it more. I need to increase the number of reps. I need to increase the the amount you hold this yeah. exercise for. 
you know and and so i think i think that we have to almost become personal trainers yeah yeah pts of the swallow yeah yeah <laughs> exactly i mean you laugh about it but i mean i'm someone who likes yeah. exercise but and so i kind of i do kind of understand the pillars of exercise the five pill frequency intensity duration um tired and of course i can't get the other two yeah. but I think you actually have to apply those those principles. Well, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree. So, uh, if I could, I would. I think we're missing the mark. We're not. We're not really. We're focused on maybe getting big numbers, which is great, but we're not. We don't have committed study participants, and yeah. so we can't really make these theories. You know, well, our exercises do work, or our exercises do prevent decline. You know, we can't make we can't make those statements. I think it's irresponsible of us. Oh, you want to talk about MES? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, I took the Vital STEM course in 2014, so not too long ago. And, you know, I graduated from UNC in 2013. So I was you know, a very fresh clinician at that point, still relatively new. But at that time, I just thought, wow, this is so cool. This, this is going to, this is going to change what I do. Yeah. And I, and I slowly realized that it only worked for certain patients. Mm -hmm. and, and then I started reading about radiation fibrosis, and then I realized why it doesn't work with head and neck cancer patients. And I'm not going to say that definitively, but I think we need a lot more research on it to say whether or not it does work. But I wish I could show you a picture because when you have radiation fibrosis, you have fibrin, this, this really tough, different kind of tissue that's blocking the vessels and the arteries of that tissue. I guess I think of like a steak. Yeah, a really fatty steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I just imagine like trying to cut through a really tough steak. Yeah, you know, and, and with NMES, you want to remove all the barriers to those to those tissues. Well, you've got tissue, you've got tissue that is filled with barriers and it's, it's only getting worse. From a physiological standpoint, it just doesn't make sense that it would help. And I think we want to be as a profession. Some of us want to, want to believe it helps. But I'm just not going to jump on that bandwagon until I see more research about it. I just, I just can't. I don't understand how that would help. I think we need more research about just the pathophysiology behind radiation fibrosis so that we can understand what we're treating. I don't think we really understand the kind of tissue that we're treating so different than any other tissue. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I think until we, until we know more about it, I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to say that what we're doing with head and neck cancer patients as far as treatment is effective because we don't know much about the tissue. I just have a real problem with that. And, you know, the research in head and neck cancer and dysphagia exercises is not so great in our field yet. Have, I mean, I, I looked at a 2013 systematic review of dys dysphagia therapy for head and neck cancer and there were only eight randomized control studies, which were all around 25 to 50 patients. And there were no double-blind experiments, so a lot, a lot of bias, perhaps. And just don't have much evidence to support what we're doing yet. I'm just, I'm hoping for yeah, more researchers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping for more research. I'm hoping for more randomized control studies, and larger studies that focus on one kind of head neck cancer with one kind of stage and one kind of treatment pathway so you can kind of bend the playing field then you can look at those results yeah I'm excited for that like i, I kind of want to i kind of want to do that for myself <laughs> i wish i had the time <laughs> yeah 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 okay so radiation fibrosis syndrome is the reason why head and neck cancer dysphagia is so difficult to treat 
and no SLPs are talking about it in the literature. I have I've done a, a thorough search. <laughs> I have not seen radiation fibrosis syndrome in any of our research. It all comes from outside of our, our field. And the big man of radiation fibrosis syndrome is at Memorial Sloan Kettering. His name is Michael Stubblefield, the doctor, and he is the leading researcher in radiation fibrosis. And he has fantastic YouTube videos on his presentations. I just I just love it. Done a lot of great work and he's written a lot of great research articles as well. So I've I've kind of just I have an alert set up on my Google. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When he publishes something, I'm like, I'm there. Read that first thing. It kind of helps me make sense about what my my patients are experiencing. Why certain things are not working, and kind of gives me a a sense of hopelessness. But then it kind of helps, you know, because I know someone is out there researching it. It just has to get into our field a little bit more. So okay, so talk a little bit more about your program, Megan. So is it? Do you have to be there live or do you guys have an online course? Yeah, you know, we don't have an online course. We feel like it's too hands-on. Yeah. We, we show we show participants how to make a device and we also do myofascial release techniques. We bring in different kinds of speakers every time. So this time we have a, I'm really excited to have a motivational interviewing psychologist come in. Uh, I think that's another thing that I would, I wish that our field would do a little bit more of motivational interviewing. I don't know if you've ever ever heard of it. No, I haven't. It's this technique that's used by all kinds of medical professionals about the the basic concept of it is instead of you telling the patient what the benefits are to something, what the consequences are to something, leading the patient to figure that out for him or himself. And so motivational interviewing involves certain questions. And it's based on, you know, counseling skills that include compassion, acceptance, collaboration, and evocation. So you're just trying to get the patient to think about his or her motivation for for being here today. And I think it's not, it's not only beneficial for clinicians working with head and neck cancer patients, but any patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds really, I'm going to definitely Google it when... (laughs) When we're done, yeah, it sounds really cool. Seriously, Teresa, it's it's life changing. Yeah. As, as a clinician, when I learned about it, I just I realized that man, I'm I'm, a po- I'm talking to patients wrong. Try, I'm, I have good intentions. I want to like give them all this information, but then I and, and then I went home and I wondered why aren't they listening? Why don't why don't they why don't they see these problems? Why why aren't they doing these exercises? You know, I was bummed out by just all the discharges. You know that I have to do sometimes because patients aren't putting forth any effort. And I started thinking like, is it me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. There's some good books out there on it. Yeah. I'm, I'm super fascinated now. Yeah. I want to know all about it now. I know, I'm telling you, I think, I think it really is a, just a mind blowing new approach for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what, you know, you like to think that all speech pathologists have great intentions. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think that any of us come into this profession wanting to, you know, with ill will, but it's just the whole reason I keep going back to why I want to do this podcast is just to be open to new things and be open to new ideas. And that's totally one of them. You know, it's like, I feel like day after day, I'm just talking at my patients (laughs) and I'm not getting anywhere. You know, I'm not, not saying me personally, thank goodness, but you know, I I think some people, you know, they, they vent about things like that. Yeah. Just, I try to tell them the risks of, you know, if they eat that grape, what's going to happen, you know? And if you keep getting the same results and the same defiant patients, perhaps it is you. Yeah. Perhaps you do have to change your thinking. Yeah. You know, so. I I agree. You know, I think it's something 
that maybe it's not at all patient. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's our approach and people are, everyone's different. Everyone needs sometimes just different approaches. I think it's most, I think it's very helpful with any patient, but especially head and neck cancer patient when maybe yeah. their, their main thought isn't speech therapy. So just something to, to think about. There's a lot of great resources out there. There's actually, you can be like a consultant or you can take a course in motivational interviewing. I've thought about that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds totally cool. Pretty cool. Um, so are your courses just in North Carolina or do you guys travel? We would like to travel, but we have to have yeah. someone help us, you know, host the event. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of work and have not been able to take the course outside of North Carolina, but we're open to it. We're trying to think of maybe ways that we could do some of it online. It's really, I don't know, what what, it, what has been your experiences with the online versus, I mean, have you have you ever done any in, you know, live courses where people you know, come to, to the course and attend the course versus online? Yeah, I mean, I, re- I really do love online courses. I know some people like bash them because they don't think they pay attention and things like that, but I really do love them. But I think, you know, in your case, you know, especially if you are doing some type of manual or I think that would be difficult to teach online, but. Maybe we could, you know, we were thinking we could, ex- we can kind of just exclude the ones that require yeah. the hands-on stuff. Like yeah. we don't have to do the myofascial release. Um, yeah. Cause I think, I mean, you got, you have so much great information that so many people don't know about. Thanks. I hate for people to not have access to the information, you know. I was thinking about doing like an uh, online video about head and neck cancer screening. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially since it is such a growing population, unfortunately. It is. And it's, it's, not so, it's not so different than what we do, actually. Just, yeah, yeah. I think it's just all the terminology. It's the terminology, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, people are like, I don't know any of this stuff. You know, and, and if you're a good, good clinician, you're going to shy away from it because you, you know, ethically don't have the experience to treat it. But, you know, I think just getting, no pun intended, getting your head wrapped around it. Yeah. I think trying to not be so scared about taking risk. If you like, I'm actually someone who doesn't like to take risks. I don't gamble. <laughs> I do not like to take risks. That's so funny. But I've learned that with these, with my patients, yeah. I need to be willing to take risk if the patient is willing to take risk. Yeah. Well, there you go. And I have to be okay with that. And I have to, you know, separate myself from what I want to do versus what they want to do. Yes. You have to remove yourself emotionally from it. Yep. You do. And that's hard with, with a lot of these patients. You know, they're suffering so much. Um, there are a lot of great resources. I, I try to um, refer patients to you know, local groups, support groups. You know, the Larry Speakeasy has a list of laryngectomy local support groups by state. And usually any major head and neck their clinic, that hospital will t- typically have some kind of local support group. It's really important for patients to, to other patients and caregivers as well. So oftentimes these patients don't even know about those kinds of resources. Any any little bit helps. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> when I even think of in grad school, our grad school clinic had a laryngectomy support group. Oh. Constantly, yeah, and everyone like fought to get in, like to have their placement in the support group. Really? It was just such a fun group. Like it was, I think there was maybe like eight or 10 people in it and they just all had like such positive outlooks on life and it was just such like a fun, like as stressful as grad school was, like we had so much fun with this group and I like, I learned so much from just a group of, you know, people with laryngectomies, but they all just, 
it was just really the power of what a support group can do. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to cover? Any final thoughts? Or I forgot to add that you know we have the most evidence to support certain kinds of swallowing exercises with these patients. So according to research and evidence, we have the most evidence to support effortful swallow, super supraglottic, Mendelssohn, and jaw range of motion. And I came from Cousins et al. Systematic Review. If you go through, I think that was, yeah, the 2013 Systematic Review of Dysphagia Therapy Studies for head and neck cancer patients. So at least you can kind of rely on a, a collection of exercises that we know has some evidence base with these patients. Oh, I think I, I, think I went through everything. Hope I didn't bore you. No, not at all, Megan. This is so good. So the last question. So yeah. the yeah the the question that I ask everyone and, oh. and... <laughs> a hard question. <laughs> oh no, no, it's not hard. What research paper, article, treatment strategy has changed the way you practice, or has been a game changer, or a really light bulb moment went off yeah. for you? I just have to pick one. No. Okay, because <laughs> that would be really difficult. I don't know that anybody's complied with my one rule, so, yeah. It's really hard, you know? I know, I know, I know. You know, most of the research that I read, written, the articles are written by people outside of our field, mostly physicians, some PTs. I love anything by Michael Stubblefield. He's like the man in radiation fibrosis syndrome. If you want to learn about that, he's got great videos. Where is he located? Memorial Sloan Kettering. Okay. He's fantastic. I love Hojin, Vandermolen, Alberg, Murphy and Gilbert. They have a great, you just, you don't know anything about head and neck cancer. Um, I thought I would include this one because two MDs wrote about the side effects of radiation on the swallow for head and neck cancer patients. So it's really interesting to see their view. And they really talk about speech pathologist's role cool. in treating these patients. And it's from 2009. Do you want to know more about Trismus? Um, Nina Pauli, she's, a, she's again a physician in Sweden and she knows all about Trismus and radiation fibrosis. She's a fantastic one to read about. I'd say that's probably my, my group of people that I tend to follow and make alerts on Google. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Make <laughs> Set up your Google alerts. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to like, wake up in the morning and receive, oh, my favorite researcher published something yeah. about that. So, nerdy yeah that is so nerdy but it's great (laughs) (laughs) oh well good all right well thanks so much megan i hope i answered everything so if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge then please leave a review on itunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.